Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Banker Midweek. This week, your editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and Amalia Ilgener. Hello, Amalia. Hi. Hi. We love having you on, and we know how much you love Basil, which we're going to be talking about later. Uh, so today, we are welcoming Yuval Ruz, CEO and co-founder, and Manoj Ramia, General Counsel of Digital Asset. Hello, both of you. Hey, excellent. So as we all know, in 2024, The Banker Midweek is our weekly sit down about what is happening now, what the industry is chatting about, and what do bankers like you need to know. And of course, all of these things are influencing current and future stories on thebanker.com, the only site you need when you're a banker. So today we are going to be talking about crypto assets specifically in light of the release of the final standard on the prudential treatment of banks' crypto assets by the Basel Committee uh, that came out late December, right before Christmas. Um, And in it, it said the committee has completed this review and concluded that the use of permissionless blockchains gives rise to a number of unique risks, some of which cannot be significantly mitigated at present. Some of the most significant risks stem from the network's reliance on third parties to carry out basic operations. Banks have limited ability to conduct due diligence and oversight over those third parties or prevent provincial disruptions to the network. Similar analysis applies to political, policy, and legal risks, AML, CFT risks, risks around settlement, finality, privacy, and liquidity. At this point, however, the committee does not propose any adjustments to the crypto asset standard to allow for the inclusion of crypto assets that use permissionless blockchains in the Basel Committee's Group 1 classification, which everyone knows has a lower risk weighting. So we're going to ask you, Lots of questions about this, so we can uh, we can have a clear a clear understanding about uh, where the industry is going forward. So it's interesting. Uh, one of the first questions I have for both of you is: Has there been ongoing discussions in the industry about the use of public permission permissionless blockchains for, versus private blockchains by banks? I kind of I, I I haven't heard too many of those discussions. Has that been prevalent? in the industry? And, and and does this bring more clarity around those discussions? How does it do that? I think that um, the segmentation till today have been what you would say public permissionless versus private permission. But I'd like to draw the attention that the paper actually talks specifically about permissionless. They, they don't mention public. And I think that that distinction is extremely, extremely important because um, the, the, the nature of their concerns is around the permissionless nature, not necessarily the public, at least that's, that's our, our take on, on the paper. So to, to your question, I think, yes, a lot of the banks have been discussing the use of public versus private. There has been a lot of experimentations, probably the most, the most famous is the MAS in Singapore uh, under the umbrella called Par- Project Guardian, where you're seeing a lot of the experimentation uh, taking place. What we're seeing is that a lot of the banks are challenged because part of public chains, which is extremely compelling, which is it's very easy to connect different applications. And, and when you think about 
blockchain technology, really the, the, the goal of the technology was how to connect silos of data to one another. And one of the challenges around uh, what, what people would call private permission is that you created networks uh, for a specific use case, but at the end of the day, those were just slightly larger silos. And therefore, this idea that you can just create a global network where application can seamlessly connect to one another is extremely appealing. The, the problem, as, as you stated, I think, in, in the question, and I think the paper is that today, public is usually synonymous, synonymous also with permissionless, which is really where the risks are, are being introduced. And, and that's really why we, we wrote the, the paper that we've published is not every public chain necessarily have to be permissionless uh, by default. Okay. I think Amalia has some, some questions on that, that coming up, but I just wanted to, to maybe just quickly before I pass it off to her. I mean, this idea, a lot of banks, you know, stay away from like regular crypto, like like Bitcoin and stuff like that. I mean, it, it seems, I, I just, I, I wanted to be clarified in my head. It, I mean, do, does, does the Basel Committee statement just mandate what's already practiced at most banks now or is it or is this a, a a change in the way banks operate i think slightly different and i'll let mm -hmm. i'll let manoj uh, add any comments but i think that uh, this is actually specifically saying any asset on a permissionless chain and and we've seen probably in the last year the most significant um, volume increase around what you would call rwa real world assets tokenization so we're seeing tokenization of money market funds, uh, uh, private equity funds, uh, bond issuances. So I think that what's what's important to note is that what the Basel Committee is saying is that any asset that has been issued on a permissionless chain will not be uh, able to be deemed a Category 1 asset. That means that if you are um, uh, someone who's holding uh, a bond today, the old traditional way, you are going to be subject to a, an 8% capital charge, according to the Basel standard. And now, if, if that bond was issued on a permissionless chain, you will be subject to a 100% capital charge. And that's, that's really the big, the big difference uh, to what, what we would say traditional crypto asset. I don't know, Manoj, if, if you have anything else to add. Yeah, yeah, just just to maybe add a bit more there. I, I do think this is an important statement from the Basel Committee because, Liz, like you said, it, you know, you've got this mental model of traditional assets and regular crypto, with regular crypto getting a twelve fifty risk weighting. But what's important about what the Basel Committee came out and said this past December is when you use a permissionless blockchain, and you have a traditional asset, a real world asset we're still going to treat that like regular crypto. And, and I think that distinction is important. That's a change in the mental model. I think when these numbers first came out over a year ago, everyone just very easily said, all right, I've got traditional assets, they're fine, group one. I've got regular crypto, they're not fine, they're group two. But now what's being made clear is that even with traditional assets, your choice of technology is incredibly important when you're determining the capital treatment of those assets. What I'd like to really dig into is what about the examples of banks issued their own issued stable coins, like SockGen's recent offering. Like, so it's on Ethereum and it's permissionless. So essentially there's now like a hefty like 
almost punitive charge. So what do you think, will that curb similar issuances? First of all, uh, it's it's a very important question. And, and I, 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 I fear that there's not a simple answer to it. <laughs> That's because okay. I think that a lot of the issuances today weren't what I would call necessarily in all cases, a native issuance on a permissionless chain. And what I mean by that is the chain itself is not necessarily the record of the asset. And I think that that's a, an important distinction. And, and to be honest, I, I have to be honest, I don't know how the Basel committee would treat this specific case of an issuance, but really what, what they're saying is we're using the permissionless chain as a distribution mechanism, but if something were to, to go bad, uh, we have you know a recovery mechanism uh, outside of the chain. And by doing that, you're effectively still behaving like in the old world where there's a slight improvement where you can have a better distribution and better connectivity. The reason I'm saying I don't know how the committee would treat it is because you're still, um, I guess, um, uh, subjected to the risks around AML, KYC, in, in case that, that uh, if you don't have control or you don't know uh, all wallets who they belong to. Mm -hmm. But if you take the example of, of SockGen, uh, uh, which issued a stable coin, I think that if you look at the way they have done it, um, they really, it, it is really um, a step forward and, and it's, it's really impressive what they've done. But at the end of the day, SockGen is still acting as a gateway into their stablecoin in the sense that you cannot, you cannot have the stablecoin in your wallet unless they whitelisted your wallet address. So it's not a fully permissionless application. Mm -hmm. It might run on a permissionless on a permissionless chain, but the application itself is not fully permissionless. And, and that's why I'm saying you're, you're kind of having kind of a hybrid model here. And therefore, I don't know if, if the Basel committee in that case, for example, would give them the benefit of, of saying this is not a, a permissionless asset, mm. uh, but you're, you're kind of starting to mix. But I do think that, that assets and stable coins that have been issued in a permissionless uh, manner, yes, would, would probably suffer from, from this new treatment of, of digital assets. When we're thinking about it, the mental model shift where, where, you know, that we think is important is that when you're looking to tokenize assets, you really need to have both control and connectivity in mind, mm -hmm. right? Because the Basel standards are, are very focused on control, rightfully so. But then you look at other regulatory statements and just thinking the big picture about tokenization for it to work and for it to really deliver the benefits that it promises, you also need it that connectivity. Um, and, and so it's, you know, how can you get the control that you need under Basel while still getting the connectivity that allows you to get the benefits of tokenization? And that's really how we're trying to think about the problem and, and we think is important from a technological point of view. So how do you think the industry is going to react in the, like, in the next coming months, like with these sort of hybrid, um, issuances already out there like will do you think they'll be more reluctant to develop new ones and just wait for the first movers to kind of you know be regulated or or not and see how they react to it or what what do you think is going to, what are we going to see in the industry so i i think that first of all it's it's 
I, I guess one aspect I would say that is positive is that at least regulators are becoming more and more clear about how they see the use of the technology, which I guess is a, is a good thing because I also think that absent that um, the technology providers such as ourselves and, and, and our peers have a challenge on where to focus on their development. So I, I personally don't think, um, and, and we at Digital Asset have been developing a public, what we would call a public permission network, meaning it could be fully public, but, but you as a user can permission who can touch assets, mm -hmm. uh, you can control all of those things that the Basel Committee talks about. But I think that our peers can start focusing on making sure that the features um, that the regulators are concerned about will be addressed. It's kind of very similar in the beginning days of the internet. You didn't necessarily had all the encryption technology and all the safety mechanisms, how to, to safeguard uh, uh, data that was running through the internet. And as it became popular and people wanted to use it, you know, the technology providers started developing the tools to make it more widely available. So I think that that's, that's a good part of it. I think that what you will see from regulated institutions is that they now um, um, start to really think about how can they prove to a regulator that all of these controls are in place when using the technology. I, I don't necessarily think that this is going to curtail the use of the technology. It will just mean that you as a participant will have to be able to demonstrate, and now there's, there's uh, guidance of the things that you need to be able to demonstrate that you have control over. And, and I think that that's actually no different than technology today. I mean, if you're using cloud or if you're using any other technology, there are certain uh, functions that you as a bank, as a broker dealer, for example, need to be able to demonstrate that you have control over. And I, I do see this as a positive development because you, you see a lot of momentum building in the market for tokenization. And this actually provides clarity now about the technology choices that a bank needs mm -hmm. to make. Whereas you, you had a bit more of an open field before. Now you know what your constraints are. And the trade-offs, like what, what, yeah, what the price is really. Yes, exactly. And so what comments are you expecting to come through in the next, well, I think it closes in, in the end of March? A lot of what, what was discussed in this last paper was around stablecoin um, stable rules, which, you know, we didn't want to get into. But I, I do think from our perspective, it really is, again, uh, the importance of emphasizing choice of technology and for regulators to understand the differences and the nuances in different blockchain technologies. There's been, over the last several years, it's a very, very stark public versus private dichotomy where public has always been synonymous with permissionless. And, and I think technolo technologically we're moving past that point and I think it's important for regulators to be aware of that as well. And, and, and if I can just add, I think that maybe from a commentary perspective, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe the, the, there will be um, some kind of clarifications, Amelia, for example, about the, the discussion we had around is the hybrid model, for example, good enough? Like, uh, do, you mm. get, do you get some kind of benefits if you have a lot of things off chain as, as for example, uh, a fallback mechanism? I'm, 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 you know, might might ask for clarifications 
around those type of edge cases. I think that uh, there might be uh, um, some comments around making it more clear what are the controls that need to be in place? Because again, this this was a first stab at it. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if certain banks would want to make sure that cert certain edge cases are much more clear and that some of the controls ha have a much more clear definition. Because again, I think the principles are in the right direction, but but probably in some cases could be more more precise uh, based on you know some some institutions that have real world uh, experience with issuing these type of assets on this technology. Are you submitting a comment? <laughs> We're discussing it. I mean, it's interesting that this world that's being created of, um, you know, private, uh, wait, so public permissioned, and that so as opposed to public permissionless, and then private permissionless, public, <laughs> we'll get it all, we'll get it all in the end. I mean, in terms of this, uh, moving into, you know, not all not all uh, per permissioned blockchains are private. Like what outside of the banking world? I mean, what is this going to mean for for wider players in that sort of cri crypto e ecosystem? Before I get to the to to the answer, I I think that this idea of uh, of public permission um, is something that we see every day in our use. I mean, I think of the internet as a public network, meaning I have an internet provider and I, I have a browser and I can access the internet. But if you know the the, the banker uh, has a paid subscription, it doesn't mean that by default every time you put a website on the internet, uh, all of your content is now public permissionless data, right? You as the as the website creator have certain controls over your data, and it's really your decision, based on your business model, based if you're regulated or not, to decide what are the permissioning on your application, which is your website. And I think very similarly about this public permission is this idea that you can create, quote unquote, an internet for assets, right? That is public, meaning everybody with the equivalence of a, of a browser can access the network, but it doesn't mean that by definition, you have access to every asset uh, that exists on that network. And it's really the, the application creators or the issuers that can have these controls to say, these are the type of individuals that we want to be able to access these assets and they need to maybe get KYC to AML. They maybe need to have a paid subscription in order to touch these assets. And, and it's a very, very similar evolution, I think, to, to what the internet have gone through. And, and, and if you think about it that way, I think that, you know, um, Capital markets have been maybe kind of at the forefront, but I will tell you that um, at Digital Asset, we we work with healthcare companies. Uh, we're working. We're we're about to launch a, a very big product with an insurance company. Um, there, we have a, a, a large client in sports wagering. At the end of the day, when when you think about it, there is not even one industry, in my opinion, in the world today that doesn't have certain types of assets that are associated with that industry and, and removing the barriers of connectivity between peers and competitors can create a, a significant amount of, of business opportunities that today are just not financially feasible, right? If, if connecting systems today is extremely expensive, I think we're moving towards a world where, where you're going to see 
quite a lot of collaboration and a lot of business ideas that today uh, wouldn't even be possible. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because it's fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you brought up, you know, other industries that you're working with because this this idea of having a, a public, open, connected network, which, which, as you mentioned, you can connect with your peers and your competitors, it makes sense from a business point of view. But from what I know about banks, that's something I think a lot of banks would um, resist. <laughs> they have in the past. So, I mean, how is, like, how is that path going to be for banks moving forward? And I think that that's maybe the key where I was talking about the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it's important to state that it's creating the infrastructure that allows you to connect, but doesn't force you to connect. And, and I think that that's maybe the, 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 the point that matters is, uh, I'll give you an example. There's, there's a project that, you know, uh, a lot of people are talking about the alternative uh, space. The amount of reconciliation that runs uh, for processing a private equity fund is, uh, I, I was never aware of that cost, but that cost of connecting all the parties, all the way from a, from a GP, like a Blackstone, all the way to registered investment advisors or wealth managers, there's an insane amount of cost. And that cost of connecting the dots is not beneficial to anyone. So I think that I think you you bring up a good point that in capital markets a lot of times connectivity when it when it uh, uh, it creates or or breaks um, you know uh, competitive advantage barriers people are not necessarily eager to make those connections mm -hmm. but there are many cases many many cases uh, and and we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of cost where the connectivity is purely a tax. It's a drag on an industry. It's not, it's not serving the benefit of anyone other than certain uh, players that have been created purely because connecting A to B is hard. They're not necessarily financial. Uh, they don't provide credit. They don't uh, reduce risk. They are purely service providers that are saying connecting A to B is hard. Let me do that work for you. And that's really a tax. So I always, when, when a lot of times when people ask me the question, you know, who, who is this technology going to disintermediate? I always give the example of Uber. If, if connecting a person to a taxi in the past required a person in the middle, right? Today, you don't need that person in the middle. So I, I always think that this technology will disintermediate those, those players that are not necessarily providing any service other than connecting A to B is hard. And, and, like I said, there's many, many use cases where that is uh, prevalent today. An end to the middlemen then, <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> excellent. Gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for an excellent conversation. Uh, thanks. Thank you for joining us on The Banker Midweek. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.